0: Good morning. My name is Victor France. I've been attending Joy as long as I can remember. My wife Gabby and I have been members for about four or five years or so. Um, Would you open your Bibles to Acts 3? I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 26. It's on page 911 of the chair Bibles. and he had decided to release him. But when you denied holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that, his, that is Jesus, through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. For restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in his offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the blessing of being able to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. We thank you for your presence with us. God, please be with Jason, helping him to preach, not relying on human wisdom, but on your spirit, as you are faithfully with him always. Bless this congregation, and help us to receive this instruction, and help us to know and love you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
1: armchair quarterbacks this area has ever known. <laughs> you familiar with the armchair quarterback? They're going to tell you the things that the refs got wrong. They're going to tell you the things that the players got wrong, the announcers got wrong, the halftime performers got wrong, the people who made the commercials got wrong. They're going to say things like, so they spent $5 million for that 30-second ad? That's what they did with their $5 million? But focusing on the game, I guarantee you that there will be times tonight if you are locked in watching with other people. And Listen, I'll put myself in this category. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm going to say things like, how did he miss that? You you saw that. that Look at this ref. He's looking right at him. Jalen Hurts, how do you not see that guy? Wide open. He's right in front of you. Right? Is that going to happen where you watch? Yeah, most likely. A blown call that you say, it's so obvious. How did they miss it? As we continue through the book of Acts, today's passage can give us a similar feel. In the life and ministry of Jesus, there are so many times when you read through the Gospels and the reader is brought to the point of asking the question, how are these Jewish leaders and Jewish people not getting it? How do they miss it? How are they not seeing it? Why aren't they believing and following him? He is the clear fulfillment of their own scriptures. At this point in the book of Acts, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And as we talked about last week, Peter and John have just healed a man who was lame from birth in Jesus' name. This man was now walking and leaping and praising God. And in today's passage, I don't know if you notice the words that Peter uses, but it says that this man is strong and in perfect health wasn't a partial healing, wasn't like, well, yeah, he's kind of limping along, they're helping him. No, he is strong. He is in perfect health. And for 40 years, he had never walked once till that moment. An amazed crowd, one that we should assume is largely Jewish, if not entirely Jewish, gathers around, stunned, stunned by this miracle, amazed, This miracle that so clearly attests to the mighty power of the risen and ascended Jesus that clearly shows that he is the king of a kingdom that defeats death and disease and sin and hell. And yet, to this point, they had missed it. How did they miss it? A pattern we see established in the Gospels and again in the book of Acts is that a miraculous work opens a door for the Gospel to go forward, an opportunity to share the Gospel. We saw it in Acts chapter 2, right? The the 120 who are gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost are miraculously given the gift by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak in the languages of all the people who have gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then they have an opportunity. Peter has an opportunity to share the gospel with that crowd who looks on in wonder. Today's passage is the same. A miraculous healing leads to an opportunity for the message to go forward. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to consider this passage through the lens of three headings. This is my tribute to Larry. Three O's. That's right. I did it for him. Three O's, the object of praise, the offense toward the praiseworthy, and the opportunity to turn back. So we have the object of praise, the offense toward the praiseworthy, and the opportunity to turn back. My prayer is that we will see again, or for the first time, That the name of Jesus is a healing and rescuing name. That Jesus is truly the promised Messiah, the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of the world. And that though our sins against him are wicked, even still he calls us to turn to him. So we begin this passage with the man clinging to Peter and John. Do you see that you have your Bibles open? Or your phones to a Bible, not texting with other people. Do you see in verse 11, it starts here, while he clung, this is the man who uh, was healed by Peter and John, he clung to them. Why is this man clinging to them? What do you think? Okay, overwhelmed. Did I hear overwhelmed out there? He's overwhelmed, amazed. Okay, what else? Thankful. He's thankful. What else? He's walking. He's walking. Yeah. Sure. What else? Impressed. Impressed. Okay, I'm gonna, I want to stay near these guys. Yeah. He want, maybe he wanted to show others, these are the guys who did this. I'm hanging with them. Maybe he's saying, hey, after what you just did for me, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll listen to whatever you have to say. I don't know who you are, but I owe you my life. The crowd of people who had come to the temple for afternoon prayer gathered around as well. I don't know if this happened with this passage. I don't know if it takes place after the hour of prayer or continuing right before the hour of prayer, but we don't see that in the text. But no matter what, they're gathered at Solomon's portico, which ran along the east side of the outer gate of the temple. Uh, Jesus had taught from Solomon's portico. Do you know where? Do you know when in the Gospels? That's a tough one. John chapter 10, we see Jesus teaching from Solomon's portico, and as he talks about himself being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We'll see another reference to Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 5. It seems it was a common gathering place, For the Jesus believing Jews. So, this crowd that's gathered, I'm sure, wants to hear about this miracle, more about it. Did Peter and John do it? If so, how did they do it? Did they have a special connection to God? Were they they touched by angelic forces? And Peter takes this opportunity to speak. Remember, we're talking about 1st O, which is what? The object of praise. So these people are coming to Peter and John and saying, like, how did this happen? How did you do it? And what do they do? Right out of the gate. Verse 12. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So Peter right away tells him, this wasn't us, right? Now let's keep going, 14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter takes this opportunity not to brag about himself or about John He says, the name of Jesus healed this man. Faith in the name of Jesus made this man well. Real quick, kind of side note. Whose faith is he talking about? Whose faith in this, by faith in his name, has made this man strong? I've heard like every possible answer. I think I heard uh, Jesus, God, Peter, John, and that man. And that's interesting because if you read commentaries, they, they also say it could be uh, Peter, could be Peter and John, could be the man, and I've come to the conclusion that it's probably all of them, Peter, John, and the man. We don't get much of a glimpse into the man's response, but... Peter and John, they grab him by the hand and they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this guy could theoretically have said, "Uh, yeah, I'm 40, that's never happened. Thanks for discouraging me further. There's no way that could happen. But instead, he gets up and he walks and he leaps and he praises God. And so it is the faith of Peter and John and the faith of this man. And it's in the name of Jesus. When the, when the term name is used, understand that it refers to the very essence of who that person is. Right? Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. In next week's passage, in in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, There is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. It was not Peter and John who made that man well. It was Jesus. It was not who they were. It was who he is. His name represents all that he is. As quickly as they could, they deflected the praise to where it is rightly due. When the Lord uses people to do mighty works, we are mere instruments. There is no special power in us. Apart from him, we can do... It's true. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. This mighty work had nothing to do with the power or the piety of Peter and John. They were instruments. They were servants of God. They were dependent on His power, and all praise is His. This is a good word for us as individuals and us as a church. What happens when people rob God of the glory He deserves? What happens when we start to think that we make things happen? We grow the church. We save souls. We handle things. The work of the Lord becomes a monument to who? Us. We can start to brag and say, look at all we did. Look at everything we have. We become the praiseworthy ones. We are not meant to be in that position. We cannot bear the weight of glory. those who try, read through the Bible, those who try to take that position, it does not end well for them. Who say, the glory that belongs to the Lord, I'm going to keep it for myself. I did this. We're going to see it in a couple weeks. Ananias and Sapphira will find out what happens when you try to take glory that belongs to the Lord. What happens when we start to think that our good behavior merits God showing us some extra favor? Like, I earned this. I deserve this. That's dangerous. I'm not going to say it's, it's happening in a room like this, okay? I'm not going to say this. But there are some people this morning, I predict, in this world, who woke up and said, first... I'm not going to go to church today. And then second, they said, you know what? The Super Bowl is tonight. And, you know, if I don't go to church this morning, there's a chance that God might make the Eagles lose. (laughs) I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask if there's anybody... But we do, we can get into this transactional idea of how God relates to us. That like, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. We can easily forget that every single thing we have and every single thing we do as believers through Christ is grace. It's by his grace, his unmerited favor. Lord, please guard us. From ever taking the glory that is yours alone. Please, Lord, keep us from being a people who think that if we do this, you owe us this. Peter and John know it. This wasn't us. The Lord used us, but this wasn't us. And it's wonderful to be used by the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But it was not by their power, Peter says. We don't possess any magical powers. We don't have anything in and of ourselves that made this happen. And this was not by our piety. That is, we're not some super righteous folks who merit this kind of access to God, some sort of special access to God that we can do these things. It wasn't us. All of this is by the work of whom? Peter says, listen, crowd. Who did this? Who did this? Do you notice that Peter calls them brothers? Are these other believing Christians at this point? No. He's referring to them as his Jewish brethren. And he's saying, I want to tell you who did this. Yahweh. The God of our fathers. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. The God of our forefathers did this. The God you all profess to worship, He did this. Are you with me so far? Right? He's saying to the crowd, You with me? The God of our fathers did this. And maybe they're saying, hmm, All right. Yeah. God of our fathers. Well, let me tell you a little bit more. The God of our fathers glorified His servant, Jesus. Now when Peter used the word servant, in the context of what he's sharing, this crowd would be able to make a connection with the servant songs of Isaiah, found in in chapters 41 to 53. that We read a little, little tidbit of it from Isaiah 53 this morning. But here in this passage, we find verses like Isaiah 52 13. Behold, my servant, shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted so peter is saying to them god glorified his servant jesus and their minds could be directed back to isaiah 52:13 to say there's going to be one who is the servant of the lord who is high and exalted Peter's telling them, this is the guy. This guy is walking today because of this guy. God glorified his servant Jesus. He is alive and still doing mighty works. How so? We're going to get more into that in a few minutes. So so now Peter is saying to the crowd, this is who healed this man, Yahweh. And he did it through his servant Jesus. And so his servant Jesus, crowd, what did you do with his servant Jesus? I mean, it's not as if this crowd had no firsthand reports, no firsthand accounts of the mighty works of Jesus. Some of them might have been in the presence of some of his mighty works. He had done many healings. He had raised the dead. He had preached with authority. They knew that he he claimed to be the promised Messiah of Israel. Many of them undoubtedly had considered whether his claims were true while he was among them. I mean, who could do the things he did? How did they happen? But when the rubber met the road, when it came time to state where their allegiances stood, what happened? Peter says it here, starting in verse 13. So so just, just put yourself, try. Try to put yourself in the place of this crowd. This man, you know this man. He's been begging at the temple for probably his whole adult life. He's never walked. You've never seen him walk. You've seen him be carried there. It's been 25 years, maybe, that he's being carried there. And now he's walking and he's saying, I got healed. I got healed by these guys. And these guys are saying, Oh, it wasn't us, it was Jesus. Jesus, who was sent by Yahweh. What did you do with Jesus, crowd? They delivered him over. An angry mob, led by the betrayer Judas, handed Jesus over to the chief priests and elders. They conducted a sham trial, and then they handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. They handed him over, and he de- they demanded that he be killed. Beyond that, Pilate was of a mind to set him free. But what did they do then? They denied him. Peter is telling them, this guy you're looking at, this guy that we just healed, he was healed by the living Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah that Israel has longed for. He is the Savior. Your Savior stood in front of you, having given you many reasons to believe that he was who he said he was, and you handed him over. And that was awful. But even after that, even after that, Pilate gave you another chance. Because he was troubled. And if you read the gospel accounts, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He wanted to wash his hands of this whole incident, but he was also afraid of the people. So his ideal scenario at that time was probably for the crowd to make it so that Jesus got free. So Pilate gave you another chance but when given the chance to right your wrong, what did you do? You asked for a murderer to be given to you instead. You set free a murderer rather than your Messiah. You killed the Holy and Righteous One. You killed the author of life. Jesus is the one through whom and for whom everything was created. Everything is upheld by the word of his power even as we speak. He has given us life and breath and every good thing and you killed him. You watched him up there, you handed him over, you were given another chance and then you killed him. Maybe you didn't hammer the nails into the cross, but you killed him all the same. Part of reckoning with our own standing before God is facing that music, right? The reality of our sin in the presence of a holy God. The crowd did not hold the hammer, but they killed the Savior. We too did not hold the hammer, but it was our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus died because of sin. The sin of that crowd and the sin of this crowd. And the most terrifying part of the whole account. Imagine, imagine if you will, that you had killed somebody. Actually, physically. And everybody knew about it. And that person was alive again. What would you be thinking they'd be thinking about you? What do you think? You killed him. He's alive again. What's next? He's coming for me. He's coming to get me. And Peter tells him, that guy that you killed, he isn't dead anymore. Jesus has been glorified. God glorified his servant Jesus by raising him from the dead. They killed the author of life and yet he lives. And so, crowd, you who proved to be his enemies to the point of handing him over to death on a cross, now you know that the guy who's standing in front of you was healed by the guy you killed And he's not dead anymore. He is alive and he is reigning in heaven, waiting for the restoration of all things. He is alive and you are his enemies. That is scary. What's he going to do to us? Our gospel proclamation to people who do not believe in Jesus has to involve this reality. People are, by nature and by choice, enemies of God. People live for their own glory. That's what we do by nature. You know it. You know it to be true. We have a God who is worthy of all praise and all glory, who has the right to demand anything of us. If he is God and we are not, he can demand whatever he wants from us. And he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor by the lives that we live. And yet we are people who live for ourselves. We would do anything to build our kingdom, to protect our kingdom, even up to and including the point of killing Jesus, because he's a threat. Apart from the grace of God, you and I would have been screaming, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children too. Our lives bear it out. People need to come face to face. It it sounds, listen, this is a heavy passage. Peter is laying some, some heavy realities on these people, and I want us to feel the weight of it too. People need to come face to face with the reality that they are not morally neutral characters in the play of life. They are God's enemies. We have been God's enemies because we seek to steal the glory that he alone is worthy of. They live contrary to his stated commands and his stated desires. What would you call a person who lives contrary to everything that God says to do? Would you say, are they morally neutral? What would you call a person who never lives for the glory of God, though that is what he has stated he wants for us to do? Would you say that person is morally neutral in the eyes of God? God says, I am worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and he is. And this person says, I am worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Morally neutral? I would call that person an enemy. That person said, I hear what you have to say, God, but I am worthy of all praise. My kingdom come. My will be done. That's an enemy. So this crowd is now confronted once again. This probably is a crowd that featured many of the same people as we, re- we heard about in Acts chapter 2 which I hope is an encouragement to us that maybe sometimes, oftentimes, lots of times, the gospel needs to be proclaimed more than once, more than twice, more than a hundred times. We never grow weary and never move away from preaching the gospel because it is the hope of the world and the hope of the church. And so Peter tells them again, they're confronted again with the truth that they are guilty of the blood of Christ and that he is alive. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what are they to do? We've talked about the object of praise, the offense toward the praiseworthy. Their fate seems sealed, yet it is good to see that even now, knowing how deeply they have offended Yahweh, killed his servant Jesus, Peter reaches out and offers them an opportunity to turn. And all that Peter says about what this crowd has done, I think it's somewhat startling. Look at verse 17. He says, And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. I found that somewhat startling. It seems like everything they did was very willful, doesn't it? But Paul says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Paul, Peter, there's a reason I said Paul. Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Paul uses a similar phrase in 1 Timothy 1.15, that the Lord had shown him mercy Because he had acted in ignorance. I don't want to get into speculation. There's at least a chance that Saul is in this crowd. Possibly. That's speculation. Not not the most important thing. But but he uses that same terminology that I I had acted ignorant, in ignorance. Lord had shown mercy to Paul, the chief of sinners. And here Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance. By saying they acted in ignorance, it's likely that maybe they'd even have in mind what the Old Testament labels as unintentional sins in places like Leviticus 4 and Numbers 15. And be mindful of the fact that even as heinous as their crime was, there was still maybe hope to be offered to them. The heinous act of this crowd had actually served God's purposes. Maybe they had missed it. But the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, it says here, Paul says in verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world was to be a suffering servant. We read that earlier in Isaiah 53, that the Christ would suffer, but by his wounds we would be healed. The amazing truth of the crucifixion of Jesus is that he was dying for the ones who delivered him over. So instead of ending on a word of condemnation, Peter ends on a word of hope. He tells them to repent and turn back. If you're cut to the heart, crowd... Don't be like Judas, who was remorseful and then took matters into his own hands. Be like Peter and turn back. What does repentance mean? Quite simply, I think Peter's saying, stop disbelieving. Stop your pattern of unbelief and believe that he is who he said he was. That he is who he is. Jesus is the Messiah. Acknowledge your sinful wickedness and turn to him in faith. This is the essence of all repentance. Stop disbelieving and believe. Turn and trust. But these people could come to that conviction. So he could say this and they could say, yes, Yes, I feel it. I I, I turn and and I beg for mercy at the feet of Jesus. And he could say no, right? Could he say no? He has the right to do so, doesn't he? God forbid that, that we ever think that like if I do this one thing, God is therefore obligated except for We know the character of God. We know the work of Christ. And we know that he did this because God is merciful. And that he receives repentant sinners. He forgives at great cost to himself. So Peter urges this crowd, even now, even after all that you've done, repent turn back. He says that the Lord promised to send another prophet like Moses. These quotes in verses 22 and 23, right? Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Those who reject Jesus, there is no further hope. For them, These quotes are from Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 23. Those who do not listen to Jesus will be destroyed. Thus far this crowd had not listened to him. But here was another opportunity. Listen to him. What does he say to do? Repent. And if they do. Peter shares three wonderful promises. We'll talk about these as we move toward a close. Three wonderful promises for those who repent. Number 1. And I see these by the way in verses 19, 20 and 21. Your sins will be blotted out. That's really good news. I have a lot of material here. I'm not going to give it all to you. I was thinking about this connection. You know, Peter makes this connection with lots of Old Testament faithful, right? You see Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Samuel, the prophets, all these people referenced in this short passage. I wish I had time just to dive into that aspect of it. But I was thinking about this prophet like Moses who's going to be raised up. And I'm in my Bible reading in the book of Exodus. And I just read uh, the, the account of the golden calf. Familiar with this one? People of Israel make a golden calf. Moses up on the mountain. right? Just, they just got the Ten Commandments. He's up on the mountain. They're like, I guess he's dead. I, he's probably dead. Let's make, an, let's make an idol and worship it. Because we had no direct commandments from God that we shouldn't, right? Praise God. Frank told us in Sunday school this morning, we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. Thank God for that. These people are us. The moment they had the opportunity, they violated one of the, the biggest commands that God gave them. And God is angry. And he tells Moses, I'm going to kill them all. Moses, goes, Moses says, no, 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 Father, these are, these are your people. Let me go down. Moses goes down. He sees, wow, it's happening just like God told me. They're dancing around this golden calf. Why are they doing this? He throws the tablets down. They shatter. And he is angry with the people. And yet, in Exodus chapter uh, 32, Moses says this in verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Moses could not make atonement for the people of Israel. Moses tried. Moses was a prefigure of Christ, right? What does he say? Blot my name out of the book. If you won't forgive them all. And the Lord says, no, I'll blot whoever sinned out of the book. And here, Peter says to the people that everyone who turns to Jesus in faith will have not themselves blotted out, but their sins blotted out. So that they will be declared righteous in the courts of heaven. Atonement is needed for our sin. God can't just say, oh, I don't care about sin anymore. I, can't, I don't care about any violation of my commands anymore. David says in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. But a holy God can't just say that sin is okay. It's not okay, which is why verses like 2 Corinthians 5:21, "He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." That's why verses like that are so wonderful. He can blot out our sins because he nailed our sins to the cross, including the sins that this crowd committed. By handing him over, blotted out, what an amazing hope. And then he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This almost certainly refers to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the essence of the New covenant, all that the Old Testament pointed to, all that we see in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, the prophets all of it, fulfilled in Jesus. Did you see that word that Peter used? He thus fulfilled the promised new covenant is seen in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. I don't have time to, to go there. That what people cannot do, the Lord himself will do. He will give his people new hearts. He will cause his people to walk in his ways. Twice in this passage, in verse 16, where it says, the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And then in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He does it. We are reminded in this passage that any faith that arises, any salvation that happens, is the gift of God. It comes by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And maybe we, brothers and sisters in Christ, can take for granted sometimes the refreshing that the Lord has brought upon us. What an undeserved blessing to have the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and gave life to our spiritually dead bodies. The Spirit who teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. The Spirit who is the down payment guaranteeing our inheritance in glory. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit does not guarantee that life on this earth will be smooth that everything will go well. Often it's quite the opposite, but his work and the filling of his spirit does refresh and revive and restore our souls in the midst of a broken world. And finally, Peter says, so we got the blotting out of sins, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Sins forgiven, spirit indwelling, and the hope that when this Jesus returns, think about who's in this crowd again. And he's telling them that through repentance and faith, when this Jesus comes back, He's not coming back as your enemy. He's not coming back to get you. The healing of this man on this day was to be a pointer to the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom advances here and now as hearts are turned from darkness to light. Lives are transformed. As sins are forgiven and Christ is trusted All this is evidence that there is a day yet to come when Jesus will return and fix everything. Every wrong made right. Everything broken made whole. Sin destroyed forever. The power and presence of sin, gone. Remembered no more. Only glory and joy. And wonder of wonders. You who trust in Christ. Will find yourselves not as his enemies. Even those of you who consented to his death. Not as his enemies. But on his side. Excited for his return. Hopeful for his return. Longing for his return. We have no reason to think that his return should be a good thing. We should be terrified. This crowd should be terrified. But Peter tells them, the children of Abraham are not children of Abraham because of your blood. The children of Abraham are, are those who are called children of Abraham through the promised seed, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ? The one seed that Paul speaks of in Galatians 3. The children of Abraham are not those who came here to the temple today as ethnic Jews, but those who leave the temple today trusting in Christ. Those are the children of Abraham, the children of the promise. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham, that those who stand right before the Father do so not based on works, but on trust in the promises of God. The promise that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. And the saved will feel the fullness of their salvation on that day when Jesus comes back. No longer a terror, only a joy. Do you know that joyful expectation today? Is the coming of Jesus a joyful expectation for you? For all whose trust is in Christ, it can be. For all who are trusting in self, worshiping self, the return of Jesus is a terrifying thought. And he is coming again. But the call of Peter on this crowd is the same as the call to us today. Even now, hear the gospel. Hear of this Savior and repent and believe that He is the Savior for you. Soon, the setting will change for Peter and John and really all for all in the city of Jerusalem who trust in Jesus. We're going to get to that next week. But for today, we are left where Peter leaves us. Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Savior? Do you know the salvation and hope that comes by his grace alone? Where in your lives have you taken the glory that belongs to the Lord alone and kept it for yourself? Now is the time of repentance. Now is the day of hope. Look to Jesus and find grace and mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are merciful. We, like that crowd, have no reason to expect a hopeful message. And yet, we who have contributed to your death are also those who benefit from your death. And the fact that you have been raised from the dead is not a fearful thing for us, but we get to worship Because through your death and resurrection, you have brought us near. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we have hope that goes beyond the grave. Thank you that we have forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, and the hope of glory. All undeserved, entirely of your grace, trusting in your promises. Thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.